It deals with marriage, it deals with divorce, and it deals with loving God. These are extremely important issues, and if we wanted to, we could do a sermon series on each of these. We could do a sermon series on marriage and what it looks like to date. We could do a sermon series on uh, marriages that are in conflict and what it looks like to avoid divorce. We could do a sermon series on what it looks like to love God, and actually, we do that every week. We talk about how do we love the Lord. So, instead of going into depth with these, we're actually going to be taking sort of the aerial view of these topics, the 20,000-foot view. But I want to make it clear that as you're listening, I think preaching is incredibly important. I think it's, it's vital that you are here every single week hearing the Word of God, that we can express the gospel to one another. But at the same time, I really am passionate about pastoral care. So if there's something that comes up during the sermon that, that you are um, either like, hey, you know, my marriage isn't that great and we're trying to struggle, like, I would love to come alongside you and help you through that. If you're a single person who feels lonely, who's Who's, who feels like, you know what, I, I'm just, I, I desire for someone else to be in my life to talk about the gospel. That is something where you can talk to the brothers and fathers of this church, myself, Pastor Kevin, one of the elders, and, and we will walk alongside you with these difficult and hard topics. So, we're not going to be able to cover everything in these topics today, but as we read, I want you to look for this. What does God say about relationships, and what does breaking faith in those relationships look like? So let's look at Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? Is it because the Lord is acting as witness between you and the wife of your youth? Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence, as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these are, these are hard things to discuss. Relationships are difficult, um, even friendships, even relationships with our family. But, but these relationships that you are discussing, one in which we commit ourselves to another person, they can be really hard. We pray as we discuss that we look at what it looks like to be faithful in our relationships because they are a presentation of the gospel. And we avoid unfaithlessness. We look and we examine our hearts and say, what ways have we been unfaithful and in what ways has our heart turned cold towards you? We thank you for the opportunity to discuss difficult topics, to not hide from them, but to bring them to light and let them be known of where you call us to be. In your name, amen.
So what do you believe the purpose of marriage is? What is the purpose of marriage? For a lot of people, it's personal happiness. Most of our lives are pursuing things that make us happy, and this other person makes me really happy, and I'm going to marry them. For some people, though, it's actually the opposite of that. You know, maybe for some, they pursue marriage because it makes them happy. For some others, people pursue marriage because it removes the loneliness of their life. You know, they say, I'm just incredibly lonely. I'm by myself. I I go home to an empty apartment, and I just want someone else in my life that I know I can call on at any moment that will care for me. And so, I'm going to get married. And then for some people, um, it's to have children. And, and there's been people who have come into my life who, who have been cohabitating, who've been living together, and, and basically they've been acting as if they're married, and then they come and they say, we want to get married. And I kind of go, why? <laughs> kind of living like it already. And they say, well, because we want to have children. And I say, okay. And they say, the reason why is because we want to be committed to each other before we have children. We want to make sure that the other person won't leave if we have this child. Now, I want to be clear, all of these things happen in marriage. You can find happiness in marriage, you can overcome loneliness in marriage, you can have children in marriage, but the ultimate call of marriage in the Bible is to be another demonstration of the mystery of the gospel, that God loves His people and His people love God. Relationships are actually the best display of the gospel that we can have. In the New Testament, it calls us to be a household of God that we are to be brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in the faith. And this isn't just sort of a, hey, brother, but this is a real deep spiritual sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. And when I was a single man in seminary, I had four friends who were brothers to me and are brothers still, in which they saw the ways in which I sinned. They saw the ways in which I failed, and yet they still loved me. And I saw the ways in which they failed, and yet I still love them, and it sharpened one another. And we got to present the gospel to one another, where we got to continually push each other to call ourselves to love the Lord above everything else. And they are still brothers to me today, in which we meet once a year, in which we encourage one another and say, how is your walk with the Lord? And we get to weave the gospel into each other's life, where we get to point out how God has rescued us, and God cares for us, and God loves us. And it's a deeply profound, great illustration of the gospel in my life. And in Ephesians 5, it talks about marriage, and it says, marriage is actually a picture of Christ and the church, the way that Christ has sacrificed His life for the church. And as I was writing this sermon, um, just this past week, I celebrated eight years of marriage with my wife. And just to give you a little bit of history, when we started dating, after two months of dating, I said, I want to marry you. And she said, you're not allowed to propose until five months. So I waited five months, and then I proposed to her. And a few months later, we got married. Now, one of these times we were so serious about our relationship that I said, I need to sit down with you. Before you commit to me, before you marry me, I need to sit down and and tell you every single thing that I've done wrong, or at least the worst things. I need you to know what you're getting yourself into. And so we met, and um, I shared with her the wickedness that I had committed in my life, the sins that I had done, the evil things that I had done against other people. And we both cried, and we wept, and she went back to her apartment, and I wasn't sure what was going to take place. But then, in August of that year, 
I was standing at the front of a sanctuary, and I saw her come in, and I started to weep. And for the next 30 to 40 minutes, I just cried the entire time. Throughout the entire ceremony, I didn't stop crying. Because it was the best picture of the gospel that I'd ever seen. That this person knew the depth of my sin, knew how wicked I could be, knew that I could commit those sins again, knew I could commit even worse sins than those, and yet was still willing to say, I'm going to commit my life to you. I'm going to love you even when you're unlovable. And that's an amazing picture of the gospel. And that's why relationships are that powerful of an illustration. Relationships show how God loves us even when we are weak, even when we fall into sin. And it shows how we are to love God back. And if that's true, if, if, that's the, if that's the positive side of relationships, then negative relationships, then sinful relationships actually are the opposite. They actually are an assault, a smearing of what God's picture of the gospel is supposed to be. That, that God's plan for redemption is actually not coming true through sinful relationships. When we disregard singles in the church, when we, when we sort of say, you know what, they don't they don't know what it's like. We're really busy. We have a lot of kids. You know, they don't know what it's like to be married, and yet we disregard them and say, wait a second, we can have gospel relationships, deeper relationships with them as well. That is a destruction of the picture that a gospel presentation could be made to those who are single or to anyone in this church. When we divorce, when we, when we go along with it, when we have friends who are just in really hard marriages and we go, you know what? just be a lot happier, and it'd be a lot easier if you just ended it. We are actually saying that don't pursue a gospel relationship. Instead, pursue your own happiness. And these relationships, sinful relationships, are actually destructive, not only to the people who are in it, but also to God's love for those people and the display of the gospel that He wants to have for them, of them knowing God's love. And this is why God is so, relation, so serious about relationships, and we are called to be as well. So first, when we look at this passage, what does it say about single people? So what's happening in that time? See, what was probably taking place was, um, you know, back in those, when you go into the grocery store today, do you know who's a believer and who's not? No, you have no idea. But back in those days, it was probably a little bit more obvious. You know, you had the nation of Israel, and at, for a time before this, the nation of Israel was under slavery, and probably what took place is, is you know, the nation was pretty well divided where, hey, you know, the, the people of God kind of hung out in these areas or were around this area or lived in this area. Um, they had much different customs than those who were Gentiles, who were not the people of God. You know, the, people, the not people of God lived over here. So it was pretty obvious, you know, who believed in God and who didn't. And yet, these young men, the, the men of God, said, hey, I want to marry these non-believers. Why? Well, we can assume that the people of God were kind of lower on the totem pole of society. They had been slaves for a while. They weren't doing so well. And so, they're at the bottom of the, the, the class system. And so, these men of God, when they, they looked at the other women of God, they said, you know what? If I marry her, I don't really get much out of the relationship. But I see these Gentile women over here, and they have more power. They have more wealth in their family. 
Their family has probably more status. If I marry her, I'm going to do a lot better off. And that's what they did. Now, how have we done this in our own lives? Is, is, is there not a temptation in our own lives to say, what is more beautiful? To say, look at the things of this world and look, look at the success, look at fame, look at celebrities, look at status. Or can we look among us as a body of believers and say, this is more important, this is more special, this is more loving than watching football on Sunday? Than doing anything else right now in this moment. This is beautiful. So, what does God say when these men do this? Look at verse 11. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, it says, it uses the word desecrated the sanctuary, and that is such a strong illustration for someone marrying a non-believer. But just take that illustration, imagine for a second that someone who is a member of this church comes in and just starts spray painting the walls, starts destroying the sanctuary. Now, I know none of you would do that, but that is what God is saying it is like when we marry a non-believer. Because what is happening is you are not actually presenting a picture of the gospel and a picture of the body of Christ to others when you marry a non-believer. You are actually saying, this is not worth it. Because you are marrying someone who is committed to someone or something other than God. And of course they can't display the gospel then. Of course they can't participate in the work of redemption because they don't believe it. And I want to make it very clear that a lot of times we just try to fake it. A lot of times there's times where I meet with couples and, and one couple loves Jesus and the other one says, well, I am a Christian. And you kind of, you know, dig and you ask and you ask questions and they kind of say, well, I kind of believe in God, but it's okay. I'm just going to go along with it. But God doesn't call us to that. God doesn't call us to fake it. So if you're in this room right now and you're not sure you believe in God, we don't call you to fake it. We don't call you to pretend you are a believer when you're not. God doesn't want that either. God wants you to love Him because you love Him, not because you're going along with it for a relationship, not because you're just going along for it because you think it's the right thing to do, but because you have a deep, authentic, genuine relationship with the Lord of the universe. So if that is unfaithfulness, then what does faithfulness look like in this instance? God is commanding every single believer to only marry other believers. And what God is actually saying is deeper than that. He is saying, you should marry someone who loves God more than they love you. Because here's the thing, our thought is, I want this person to love me. I want this person to really love me. But the problem is, I'm not that great. So the minute I mess up, if, if I only want them to love me based on my performance, then the minute I mess up, they don't have to love me anymore. But, but, if they love God more than they love you, then what will happen when you mess up, when you sin, they will say, you know what, I am really mad at you, I am disappointed in you, you have hurt me, and yet I'm going to still love you, not because of your actions, but because I love God. 
Because if they love God more than they love you, they will love you and love others more than you can possibly hope for. And that is why we are called to marry a son and daughter of the king and not a son and daughter of the foreign god. And, and here's the thing is, if, what if we just took a second and said, this isn't just a call for us to marry believers, but what if this is actually a call for us to pursue deeper gospel relationships with one another? What if this is actually a call for us to look to one another and say the most lovely thing that we can see in each other is the gospel, is a person's love for the Savior? And instead of looking around and saying, oh, do I want to be friends with this person or do I want to hang out with this person? Because instead, look for people in your life where you can have deep gospel relationships. Whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you have kids, look for people in your life that you can say, this person loves Jesus and I need that in my life because I need an illustration of the gospel as much as I can. What if this is a call to highlight gospel relationships in our life and pursue them. So next, what about married people? So what was happening to the married people was that they were divorcing, and probably what was happening was very, you know, the older gentlemen were looking at the younger gentlemen and seeing the younger gentlemen marry these, these women and gaining power and success and money, and what they would do is they would turn and they would look at their wife and they would say, what have you done for me lately? And they would say, you know what? You're not really bringing much to this marriage anymore. We're going to be done, and I'm going to pursue someone else. And I'm going to pursue that person for the wealth and the fame and maybe the beauty or maybe more kids, whatever it may be. And here's the thing is when I talk with people, they say, you know, uh, especially non-believers, they say, you know what? I really don't like the God of the Old Testament. He seems very cold and distant, and he doesn't seem to care much about feelings, but this passage actually points to the complete opposite. Because look at verse 16. It says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well with his garment. See, back in the 90s when I was growing up, it was uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. And by the early 2000s, we changed it to, oh, words do hurt. But here, right here in this passage, is God is saying that divorce, the physical separation of two people, is violent. It's like bloodshed. And you go, wait, just two people not living together anymore? Yes. He is saying that words matter because no doubt that one person, it's not that this is a mutual separation, it's no doubt that one person is saying to the other person, you are worthless. I don't need to be with you anymore. I don't love you anymore. And those words are violent. And it's the physical separation. And what God is saying here in this passage is that feelings and actions and words matter. And if you use them for ways that hurt others, it is violent. It is physical violence on the soul of that person. Now, before we get too far, I want to make clear that there are two instances in the Bible that divorce is permissible. One is adultery. If one spouse who has committed to the one flesh rule of, of being alone with you 
and only you, then goes and sleeps with another, that is committing adultery. And God says divorce is permissible. The second one is abandonment. If two people are together and one physically leaves the other person and abandons them and doesn't want to go through the process of divorce, then that person who is left alone is allowed to divorce. And if you're in one of those two instances where you feel like this has happened to me and I want to pursue this path, or even I just need to talk about it, then let me encourage you not to do it alone. Let me encourage you to talk to the fathers and brothers of this church, the elders, and say, walk with me, and we will walk with you. We will walk with you through this difficult time. But if you want a divorce because the person got old, or you want a divorce because it's no longer fun, or you want a divorce because it's difficult, or you want a divorce because it's not the life that I expected to live, then God is calling you to avoid that temptation. Because here's the thing, there's no other commitment made in this world like marriage. You don't buy a house and say, maybe you say, I'm going to buy this house and this will be the house for the rest of my life, but you're not committed to that. You might take a job and say, this will be my job for the rest of my life, but you're not committed to that. But marriage is not a contract. It is a covenant. It is a promise in which you become one with another person. And, and here's the thing, is what you are saying is, this is the number one promise of my life. And when divorce takes place, basically what you are saying and what everyone should say about you is, don't believe that person about anything. Don't trust that person because the one promise they were supposed to keep, they broke. Don't believe anything they say. The promise they made to love someone when they were unlovable, this, like God does for us in the gospel, isn't true. So avoid it. Stay far away from it. And instead, pursue faithfulness. And we are to pursue faithfulness. And how are we supposed to do that? God gives us a little bit of a hint by verse 14 where God is actually saying, remember what you were thankful for on your wedding day. Remember what you were thankful for. And why is that? Because, because if your love, based on a foundation of God, was not based on a love of their performance... Sure, they were beautiful. Sure, they were loving. Sure, they were caring. Sure, you went on great dates together. But the vow that you took was all on you. The covenant promise was all on you in health and sickness, in wealth or poor. You were saying, it's on me to keep this promise. It's not on them. And that's why marriage is such a great display of the gospel because of God's covenant faithfulness to us is found visible in the marriages of his people. Because here's the thing, you get to present the gospel to your spouse day in and day out. When they sin against you, you get to say, I still love you. I still love you like God loves me. And when you sin against them, you get a picture of God loving you when you sin. Because they say, I know you've hurt me, I know you've wounded me, but I still love you. And it's not just a picture of the gospel in your own life, it's a picture of the gospel for your kids. Because I'm sure that they don't believe that mommy and daddy are perfect and they have a perfect marriage. No, what they get to see is you get to say, listen, 
we are not perfect people, we are sinful people, yet we will love each other no matter what. We will not abandon each other. And you get to say, that's how God is like for you in your life, kids. God will not abandon you. God will not give up on you. And it's not just for your kids, it's for your extended family. I'm sure that there's mother and father-in-laws who say, you know what, they're not that great. You should probably break up with them or you should probably divorce them. And you get to say, I can't. I can't because that, I, can't, I can't live in a world where God would do that to me, where God would abandon me and I will not abandon them. And you get to be on display a picture of the gospel for this church that week in and week out you get to come and trust me, none of us believe that you have a perfect marriage. But we know that you love each other, not because they're perfect, but because you love God. And you get to be a picture of the gospel to the world. When the rest of the world is saying, pursue your own happiness, abandon this person if they don't make you happy anymore, if they don't fulfill your every wish and every desire, you get to say, that is not the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is to show the love that God has for me. And so the call of this passage is actually to go in the opposite direction of divorce. To not just say, I won't divorce and I'll just suffer through, but to actually go in the opposite and say, true faithfulness is loving at times the unlovable. To pursue the spouse of your youth, even when you're old, because the gospel is on display, not just in your lives, but the lives of the whole world. And finally, there's one other thing that is covered here is, is the idea of unworthy sacrifices. Now, Pastor Kevin covered this in detail last week, but it comes up again in this passage. Look at verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offsprings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Now, at the core, what is this saying? It's actually saying that actions stem from our heart, and these actions on display in this passage of marrying non-believers, of divorce, of unworthy sacrifices, come from a place of unfaithfulness. If you look at the passage, it actually uses the term breaking faith, and another translation just changes it to unfaithfulness, and it's actually used four times in six verses. And what it is saying is that all of our sin, all of our actions that break faith actually come from a place in our heart that is pursuing unfaithfulness. Ellen Dykus is the women's ministry director of Harvest USA, uh, which is a ministry that cares for people who are sexually broken. And what she says is, listen, a lot of times we want to point out the sin in people's life or we see the sin in the people's lives, and that is just fruit on a tree. It's the fruit that we see being produced. So we see, we see in this passage, we see Marrying non-believers, we see divorce, we see unworthy sacrifices, and she says that is just a fruit. And what actually we need to do is we need to look at the root of the tree. What is the tree getting that is producing this fruit? And for these people, for these families, the root, the heart of the issue is their unfaithfulness. Now, every call of Scripture is not just to say how wicked and how terrible these people are. The call is also to say, what about us? Have we, like the people in this passage, pursued and been attractive to things such as power and money 
and status and success and outward appearance, when really we should look at this church and go, this is the, one of the most lovely things in my life because it's a picture of the gospel and it's beautiful. And I'm, of course, I'm not talking about the building, I'm talking about you. <laughs> to say that I'm more attracted to this than Instagram fame, than anything else this world can give me. I want to be here. I know I've been attracted before to other things. Have we, like the people in this passage, wanted to and at times abandon our relationships with one another, whether in word or action, where we have been violent against other people in the way that we've talked to them or talked about them, where we've actually wounded them? Have we ever failed to love God, as the New Testament calls it, of being a living sacrifice, where we have supposed to dedicate our entire lives to serving God? Yes, we have. We all have. As a family member of this family, I can say we have messed up. We have been a family that has profaned the covenant by breaking faith with God and with one another. So what does God do with that? Well, historically, what were the people in the passage called to do? They were called to present sacrifices, and although at this time they were presenting sacrifices that were not that great, that were blemished, that were the weak ones, even if they presented the best goat of their flock, would it still be blemished? Yeah. None of them had perfect sacrifices. They were all blemished in some way. So what does God do? Well, it says in Hebrews 9, 13 through 14 this, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctified them so they were outwardly clean. And maybe that's our temptation as well as to say, hey, I want to present myself as outwardly clean. I want to, I want to present myself as good. But, it, but God actually says that's not good enough. <laughs> because here's what it goes on to say. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from the acts that led to death so we may serve the living God. And what this is is a picture of the gospel in which our lives have not been perfect living sacrifices to God. They have blemished in some way, and yet God says, I will send Christ who will be the perfect sacrifice, who will live the perfect life, who will be faithful when you are unfaithful, and he will take our place on the cross. And not only does he take the place on the cross, but he actually removes our unfaithfulness, removes our sins, so that when God looks at us, he sees us as perfect living sacrifices, unblemished, faithful to him till the end. You see, in our sin, we all come before God blemished, but God sent Jesus as the perfect sacrifice so that we are now covered by his blood. And what it means is this. And I want to use one example from this passage to be very clear here. What it means is this, is if you are divorced, it is not an unforgivable sin. Our hope alone rests in God's faithfulness, which always trumps our unfaithfulness. That Christ actually came to fulfill all of these in a way that we could not that he perfectly fulfilled them, that he actually goes and he calls the unbeliever to faith. 
He doesn't abandon them, but he actually goes out and says, listen, I don't want you to fake a relationship with me. I want you to have a real relationship with me. And he calls us to call others to that gospel relationship. And Christ has come, and he is the spouse who has every right to say, we have been unfaithful. He has every right to abandon us, and yet he remains true. And Christ is the sacrifice for our lives, even when we don't make a pleasing sacrifice to him out of our lives. And here is the beauty of the gospel in our relationships with one another, that we are actually called to pursue gospel relationships with one another, not just one person, but with everyone, with every believer. Relationships are that powerful of an illustration that God loves his people and his people love God. And here's the beauty of our gospel relationships, if we have real gospel relationships with one another. When we fail in those relationships, when we fail in our lives, we, we get to point out and be honest and say, I have failed, but I have a Father who does not. That God's plan for redemption is not our perfection, but His. So share that relationship with everyone in this world and with one another. Share the gospel with one another. Say, you are loved in spite of your sin. Say, I want to know you, not because of anything you do, not because of how you dress, not because of how you look, but because you love the same Father as I do. And let us go pursue gospel relationships with one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we know relationships are difficult. It is not easy. They can be painful. At times, we have committed violence against one another. At times, violence has been committed against us. Yet we pray that we have the ultimate relationship with you, knowing that although we sin, you have forgiven us, so that when others sin against us, or when we sin against others, we know that we are forgiven, that we are cared for, that we are loved. And we pray that we make this a, a goal of our life, to pursue gospel relationships with one another. To not just say, hey, I have enough, but to actually say, I want to know other believers, know their faith, know their love, and know their desire for you. In your name, amen. Let us now stand. We are going